This is episode nine, Why Prohibition Matters. Welcome to Why Blank Matters, where we discuss why small topics have big impacts. I'm your host, Amber Williams. And I'm your host, Kendra Clark. Hey, Amber. Yes, Kendra. Uh, why shouldn't you mix whiskey and calculus? Oh, I don't know. Because it's illegal to drink and derive. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so today's topic is prohibition. And we found that this is a little bit more exciting than we anticipated. So we hope you guys enjoy this as much as we have. What we learned is that prohibition had a lot more impacts even on today's society than we realized. So this is actually going to be our first two-parter. Yes. Today's episode, we're going to go over a little bit of the history and how it came to be the 18th Amendment. Next week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about what came out of Prohibition, um, but we'll touch a little bit on that today as well. When we look at Prohibition, we obviously are talking about alcohol. And alcohol was really part of the creation of our nation. There was, on the whole of the Mayflower, the front of it was filled with beer. During the Battle of Valley Forge, George Washington would give his troops half a cup of rum. And then if they ran out of rum, then he'd give them half a cup of whiskey. (laughs) Uh, Lincoln sold whiskey by the barrel. And so alcohol was just really pivotal to the formation of this nation. Americans routinely drank with all their meals, including breakfast. And initially that was just beer they were drinking with their meals. And that was like a 2% alcohol beer. So it was like really low alcohol. But in the 1800s, they began swapping beer out for whiskey, which obviously has a lot more alcohol. And by 1830, the average American drank the equivalent of 88 bottles of whiskey a year, which is (laughs) three to four times more than what we drink now right right which is crazy that's so much whiskey (laughs) Um, like I've literally had a bottle of bourbon sitting in my house that that, for like two years that was never even open so (laughs) Um, and, and drinking was especially common when the water was impure or stagnant or dangerous one of the things that they don't really talk about with prohibition is the status of clean water in the United States so You know, Chicago and New York were built up really quickly. And with that, one of the things that they had to to keep in mind was sewage and the sewage plans. Well, most of the raw sewage actually went into the rivers, which contaminated water sources. So cities during this time didn't have a lot of access to clean water. And if they did drink the water, it was really common to get diseases like cholera, typhoid and infectious diseases which could kill you and so it wasn't until 1908 that they discovered that chlorinating the water would make it safe to drink and the public was just outraged that they wanted to put chemicals in their water like how dare you put chemicals in your water like disregard the fact that there's raw sewage in it we're more worried about chemicals so it wasn't until 1915 that jersey city in new jersey implemented a contract with somebody who had no experience with water during this time but this was the first time that you really started to see um a city implement some sort of safe water safety net 
something that you see a lot with prohibition and in the contract for this this water sanitation service, you see pure and wholesome. And you see that throughout Prohibition. And that's often referred to with water. And later on during Prohibition, you'll actually see that being kind of mocked. Um, at least they made reference to it in the Ken Burns documentary, Prohibition. <laughs> in 1893, Congress passed a law saying that states had to implement something to stop the passage of communicable diseases from state to state. And the water was a big part of that. So you were getting a lot of diseases from New York going down to New Jersey and things of that nature. It wasn't until 1914 that service drinking water standards became implemented to protect the traveling public. So basically, like if you were traveling, you weren't supposed to drink the local water. which makes sense because like when you travel abroad or whatnot, they tell you not to use the water because you might get dysentery. So I actually had dysentery when I was in Afghanistan. I knew not to drink the water. However, I made the mistake of brushing my teeth with the water and I actually got dysentery. It's a horrible experience. I don't don't recommend that for anyone. Yeah, I can't imagine that would be fun. (laughs) I lost like 10 pounds. You could see all like my ribs and stuff. It It was not a fun experience, so. Oh, but they thought that cholera and typhoid were being passed through bad smells. So the public, rather than wanting to treat the water with the chemicals and chlorine, wanted to just get rid of all the bad smells. And that's not actually how any of those diseases are passed. But Also, I don't really know how you could do that. <laughs> like, how do you get rid of all the bad smells? They right. didn't have Febreze right. back then, so... <laughs> Yeah, it was George Whipple that introduced the idea of chlorinating the water sources. And, um, oh, but it was because of the the buildup of all of the cities that they still started to build, like, the public waterworks. And just so many fires were happening. So I think the Chicago Great Fire happened in, what, 1871? That was really where the pressure came from to implement municipal water sources and that was purely for fighting fires and not um for the sake of drinking water so that that's another motivation as to why people were drinking alcohol as opposed to water is because it was safer and it didn't kill you as quickly (laughs) (laughs) and and with them increasing the amount of alcohol they were drinking and cities becoming bigger you had the introduction of saloons which were bars, but they also served other purposes in the community. They were really like a social center for men. They were able to cash their paychecks. Um, If they didn't have an actual residence yet, they could have their mail sent there. They could pick it up. Uh, They could read the paper, learn English. They could get a loan. You get a loan. Um, Some saloons would offer free lunches, and it was typically salty types of food so that you would want more beer to drink with it yep um they would also have social meetings in the saloons for working class people it became a big part of that society it was like the poor man's social club yeah but people who were part of the temperance movement saw saloons as evil pretty much yes Um, they saw it as taking money away from the household Um, And they believed that it led to what some refer to as the degradation of Saturday night, which was the concept that on Saturday nights, men would go out 
and they would get drunk and when they came home they could do whatever they wanted and there was domestic violence spousal rape but that wasn't a thing back then yeah that wasn't a thing um there wasn't really divorce then police didn't investigate domestic violence right so it was this issue where money was being spent elsewhere and then also you had increased violence in the the home and people saw that as an issue right and like before we started researching this and before i really came to understand prohibition you know looking back today prohibition seems like a really trivial issue but then when you understand all of the issues around it it doesn't seem as trivial um it wasn't productive but it certainly wasn't trivial and and people really associated alcohol with all the problems that existed in society right they thought that people could be perfect if it wasn't for alcohol um, if there wasn't for alcohol you wouldn't have poverty you wouldn't have abuse you wouldn't have prostitution you would have better relationships better communities and the idea was primarily led by evangelical protestants the other thing that was going on during this time was an increase in new immigrants coming to the country so between 1900 and 1915, more than 150 million immigrants arrived in the U.S. And these immigrants were from different countries than we had previously seen in other generations. Most of them were non-English. They were from southern and eastern parts of Europe. They were mostly Catholic. And they populated the cities more so than rural areas. Three-fourths of New York's population was either immigrant or first-generation American. Chicago's was 70%. So these cities, which rural areas tended to associate with saloons and drunkenness, were also primarily immigrants and immigrants who drank alcohol as part of their customs. Um, So for example, when the German Americans began coming here to America, they developed breweries. They ran most of our country's major breweries. Names such as Adolphus Busch, David Yingling, Frederick Miller, Erbhard Anheuser, which if you've listened to all those last names, you could probably associate them with their now-known beer brands. And they even created the U.S. Brewers Association and conducted those meetings in German. So you had these new people coming in who were changing the idea of what it meant to be American, and, and that was deemed a threat by some. Prohibition in the United States really came to um one of the states first and it was originally passed i think in what 1851 yeah in maine and do you have more on that okay uh, neil dow who was the mayor of portland maine even said the traffic and drink tends to more degradation neil dow the mayor of portland maine actually said the traffic and drink tends to more degradation and impoverishment of the people than all the causes of evil combined And people got kind of upset about this law. Um, In 1855, 3,000 rioters actually stormed City Hall looking for all their booze that had been confiscated. Um, So it didn't really go over very well and kind of was a, what's the word, look into the future of how prohibition nationally would be be. perceived. (laughs) Yeah. And so then we see some similar agendas coming out of Ohio, particularly Hillsboro, Ohio. One of the people against prohibition basically accused the women of tomfoolery for protesting in the streets. 
But the women chose to do this in a very feminine manner or way that was acceptable for a, for a woman to protest. And that was by praying in the streets in front of the saloons. <laughs> and in Cincinnati in particular, it got kind of out of hand. The firefighters of the city actually came and started spraying the women. And the barkeepers and the barkeepers kind of waved the women into the saloon, trying to make it seem like they were trying to help take care of them. And when they got in there, they actually started pouring barrels of beer on top uh, of them. So <laughs> it was pretty humiliating, I'm sure. But it led to a real movement across the, the state and across the country. And women who were against temperance would march in 911 cities across 31 states during that time. And the response to the tomfoolery comment was, well, men have been t taking part in tomfoolery for how long? Well, now it's our turn, so. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> One of the more interesting characters that came out of this was in Topeka, Kansas, and her name was Carrie Nation. Yes. <laughs> I just want it to be known that I have coined Carrie Nation as the Hulk of the Prohibition Movement. So Carrie Nation, her first husband was an abusive alcoholic, and then she ended up remarrying and really liked the idea of the temperance movement, but she didn't really think it went far enough. Mm -hmm. And she was praying and asking God, like, what should I do? And that night she had a dream that said, where God told her to go to the saloons and destroy it. Specifically, Kiowa, go to Kiowa and I will stand by you. That's what she heard God say. And she Went to the saloon and smashed everything. She went with a hatchet and a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so then when she was arrested, said she was defacing property. And she was like, I am defacing nothing. I am destroying. I think that's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. Well, she also described herself as a bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus, barking at what he doesn't like. <laughs> Um, and she started doing this in more and more saloons. She ended up being arrested over 30 times. <laughs> and one time she was arrested four times in one day because she would get out of jail and go to another saloon <laughs> and do it over and over again. And there were other women who started doing the same thing, though they were in the minority from the rest of the temperance right, they, movement. They were a little bit more hesitant, but this is where I get the Hulk uh, reference from. Uh, she told one of some of the other women... You don't know how much joy you will have until you begin to smash, smash, smash. Such a great quote. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next big thing that really happened where women played a role was in 1874 when Frances Willard created the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It was a group made up of mostly middle-class Protestant women who identified themselves as guardians of family virtue. And Willard herself would end up speaking in more than a thousand towns about what they were doing. While their main focus was on prohibition, they also advocated on other issues as well, such as what to do to help with street children, free kindergarten, equal pay for equal work, which we're still working on today. And they also <laughs> raised the age of consent mm -hmm. from 10 to 16 years old. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union did a lot more than just prohibition and it was really a sort of christian socialism the bigger thing is that they align themselves with the women's suffrage movement and the suffrage movement gained more support due to 
prohibition because it was believed that women would largely vote dry. So they wanted to get those women voters to help get more votes for prohibition. Because the temperance movement allowed women to become more active in national politics. Sometimes they served more an auxiliary role. Uh, For example, Susan B. Anthony went to one temperance group that was mostly men. And they would not allow her to speak because she was a woman. Um, so she's like, okay, I'll go. She created her own group. <laughs> and it was much more organized than the men's efforts. But also, this just shows that there was a movement in this time for social reform in general. During this time, you had the creation of the Food and Drug Administration. You had the first laws related to child labor. The first laws that restricted the hours that someone could work. And so they were really trying to right wrongs through legislation. And the fact that these other reforms were successful really helped build the foundation for the idea that prohibition could help with that issue. You know, there's some other factors to keep in mind when we're talking about prohibition because the 1920s were was the era of change. But there was a lot of change building up to that. So one of the really important things that needed to happen for prohibition to be successful was the 16th amendment and that was the income tax because alcohol was america's fifth largest industry at the time and that brought in a lot of money (laughs) for the federal government so to implement prohibition before they had to do that they had to implement the income tax so that law was passed in 1913 the 17th amendment was also passed during this time and that just um was how senators got elected and re-elected. But one of the things that's also relevant is the presidents during this time. So prohibition was passed while Woodrow Wilson was in office. He was supportive of women's suffrage, but he really didn't have as much of a presence as uh, Harding. But the prohibition was loudly more so attributed to William Harding and Calvin Coolidge. So William Harding, he had like several scandals during his presidency. He had several affairs. He wrote raunchy, not love notes, but like sex notes to his best friend's wife. And um, she threatened to expose their affair. And, you know, the whole Republican Party paid a lot of hush money to the best friend's wife and sent them on a trip, I think, to Japan to keep them quiet. (laughs) Harding was, you know, he had his own newspaper when he lived in Marion, Ohio. He he ran the Marion Star at like 25 years old. So he knew how to kind of manipulate the media in ways that he wanted. He was very good at like getting out in front of things, but there was a lot of scandal. And then we go to Calvin Coolidge and he was also supportive of prohibition initially, but he was more supportive of women's suffrage, unions and child labor laws, uh, universal health insurance, and he advocated for the workers. So Calvin Coolidge gets a really bad rap um, because he's considered one of the first do-nothing presidents. And scholars are kind of divided on Calvin Coolidge because he was a very different person at the beginning of his presidency to the end of his presidency. And he was, at first he was very engaged. He came in after Harding died and he was just, they thought the perfect man for the job. But then his son died and he went into a deep depression. And that's when he gets coined as like the laziest president ever. He was known for sleeping 12 hours a day. And at the time we didn't really 
as a country know what that was or know to recognize that that's deep depression. I mean, I'm not qualified to say that, but it makes sense looking back on it, I guess. He was really good at kind of resolving society's issues before his presidency. So he came in after the Boston police decided to strike. And being an advocate for the worker, he initially went to the police officers and tried to work it out. But when they were, weren't willing to hear him out, he basically fired all the police officers because he, his whole thing was you can't strike against the, the good of the public. And you see that later repeated with Ronald Reagan with the air traffic controller strike and how he handled that. So it's very similar in nature. But Calvin Coolidge was very hands-off after his son died, and they kind of attribute him to the downfall of the nation because he really could have been implementing more policies to prevent the Great Depression. And so then we go into Hoover, and Hoover was like a hermit. He was forward-thinking, but he wasn't good at communicating his ideas, and he was very scared of the media. And so he, the public at the time attributed him at fault for the Great Depression, but he was just not good at communicating his ideas, not communicating to the public. He, his whole idea was, you know, before the Great Depression, was to give money to the banks. He didn't want to bail people out. He felt like that went against America's spirit of basically, like, picking yourself up and finding a way to make yourself relevant. His whole thing was giving money to the banks. And then the banks still failed and lost the life savings of millions of people. And that's how we wound up in the Great Depression. Um, and then FTR came into presidency, and we'll talk about him a little bit more um, in the next episode. Yes. When it comes to prohibition, you can't talk about politics and not talk about the Anti-Saloon League. They are considered to be the most effective political pressure group in American history. They were a single-issue advocacy group, which means that they didn't care if you were a Republican they didn't care if you were a Democrat. They didn't care if you went out and murdered a bunch of babies yesterday. <laughs> All they cared about is whether you voted wet or dry. Right. And, and they did not care if you drank as long as you voted dry. And that was a really important thing for the Anti-Saloon League. Yes. And they worked with churches and their main base was really among Protestants in rural areas in the South. And they were very good at manipulating politicians because they were so powerful. Right. They would be like, are you with us or are you against us? If you're with us, we'll get you elected. But if you're against us, we will defeat you. <laughs> um, there was a guy named H.C. Macon who said that the new Anti-Saloon League understood the soul of the American politician. They knew his whole politics, his whole philosophy, his whole concept of honesty and honor was embraced in his single and insatiable yearning for a job. And so by playing with them he could get it and keep it and by standing against them you would lose it they really manipulated that to get people to vote in their favor with the lobbying efforts of the anti-saloon league you also saw the women's temperance movement implementing a lot of educational material into the schools and that was called scientific temperance movement and so they put a lot of, out a lot of educational material about the dangers of drinking and a lot of this was in regards to blindness liver issues i believe and then they also suggested that it led to spontaneous combustion, which is a little ridiculous. But during this time, there were more dangers with alcohol be because it was illegal. Certain, it was woods, what was it called? Oh, wood alcohol. Yeah, so wood, al wood alcohol was oftentimes mixed 
with drinking alcohol and that did cause blindness and that did cause a lot of dangers and it did kill people. So, you know, when they made it illegal, alcohol also got more dangerous because it wasn't regulated. And they were so successful in pushing forward this scientific temperance instruction that it was actually taken up by all 48 states. So kids in schools were receiving temperance lessons three times a week, which is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So then they built the cold water army, which basically consisted of children. And you could see them holding up signs and picket signs and like, about the dangers of of drinking and and that's where you see even more so that alcohol was the scapegoat of all the society's problems was with the cold water army and what they were teaching children but one thing that helped the temperance movement after world war one was there was kind of an anti-german sentiment because we had been at war with germany during world war one right and the Brewers Association in particular tried to fight back against some of this messaging. They bought off legislators. They bribed newspapers to write editorials in their favor. They would even pay the poll tax for Hispanics and African Americans because they thought that they would be more likely to vote wet. But the Anti Saloon League and the Women's Temperance Union won. And they had to push through the 18th Amendment very quickly. Because they knew that the new census was going to change the dynamic of the vote. So they initially thought that they were going to have to pass women's suffrage for prohibition to pass. But they ended up passing prohibition first. And then in the 19th Amendment, you saw women's suffrage. And the reason they were worried about that census is because census, the census is conducted every 10 years. And like we talked about earlier, you had 150 million new immigrants who... Could significantly swing the vote. Yeah, and they'd come in in that 10-year period, so it made a big difference. But on but on January 29th, 1919, the 18th Amendment passed in the House and the Senate, and then it was ratified by the last state needed on June 16th, 1919. And it's kind of amazing that they were able to do this so quickly. So in order to pass an amendment to the Constitution, you need to have two-thirds of the House be in favor, two-thirds of the Senate, and then two-thirds of the states. Uh, We had 48 states at the time, so you needed at least 36. And by the end of it, every state except for Connecticut and Rhode Island actually voted in favor of it. So they ended up with 46 out of 48 states. One of the things that made the Anti-Saloon League so strong was that their whole lobbying efforts were based off of ideals. And the combating forces couldn't really compete with that. It's really hard to unify your message when you're competing with a moral or an ideal. So it was very hard to unify any message against the anti saloon League. <laughs> the amendment actually went into effect January 17th, 1920. So they had a full year almost when the law was initially passed and when it went into effect. So people who had the means could actually stock up their alcohol during that time. And one of the things to note initially with Prohibition that it was not illegal to drink it was only illegal to sell and mac- manufacture alcohols at, during that time. And that was made clear in the Volstead Act, which was the National Prohibition Act that was put into place to carry out the intent of the 
14th Amendment. It prohibited the manufacture, sale, barter, transport, import, export, delivery, and furnish of any intoxicating liquor. And they defined intoxicating liquor as anything that had over 0.5% alcohol. Which could be a lot of things like Worcester sauce, uh, sauerkraut. So there were a lot of things that weren't necessarily alcoholic that would not have passed those standards. (laughs) Um, And the Volstead Act was actually vetoed by President Woodrow Wilson, mainly because he thought that the law was unenforceable, which we will come to see he was correct. (laughs) But But his veto was overridden by the House and the Senate, so it passed anyway. And there were certain exemptions for the Volstead Act. You were still allowed to have liquors dispensed by doctors. Liquors could still be used for religious sacraments, and that was typically going to be wine. And they also had an exemption in there that allowed people to make wine in their homes. So a lot more people were going to synagogues during this time so they could get wine from rabbis. You saw a lot of people converting to Judaism and and things of that nature. And then it also outlined that prohibition would be enforced by the Internal Revenue Service, which is so weird looking back on it now. But um, at the time, I guess they thought that made sense. Right. And they impl- they had 1,500 federal agents to be test to, test to uh, prohibition. But, you know, we found out later that most of them were corrupt and, you know, <laughs> profiting off of this. But also there was... It was basically written into law that the states had to implement some sort of way to enforce this act, too. And that wasn't successful with all of the states. Like, I think New York basically said that they weren't going to do it. Is that correct? Yeah. So there were states that also passed prohibition laws. Some of them made them more restrictive. So some of them even prohibited consuming or, like, possessing alcohol. And then some of them are like, yeah, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Uh, Because it really pitted the federal government and the local police against one another. And one of the things to kind of backtrack on is states did implement prohibition before it was an amendment. But it was very difficult to enforce because keeping something from going across state lines is nearly impossible. So this was the first time with, with... when it was a national law, that you see that it still wasn't as enforceable, but it did go underground. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Even to today's laws, when we when we talk about different state gun laws and things of that nature. And prohibition had a lot of effects that people didn't really think about. So supporters of prohibition thought that all this money that was being taken from the household by the saloons... They thought it would go into clothing and household goods. They thought families would go to the theater more. Pay their rent. (laughs) And what they found out is that that didn't really happen. Right. Um, There was actually a decline in amusement and entertainment and restaurants fell because they weren't able to sell legal liquor and beer. And there were a lot of jobs lost because of this too. Yeah. With breweries and distilleries and saloons closing, you eliminated thousands of jobs. Right. And you also lost the revenue from the liquor taxes. The federal government lost $11 billion and lost tax revenue, which is a lot, especially in those times. So a lot of the people that had either lost jobs or were more on the verge of crime but weren't quite there yet had 
had gone to, had resolved to pickpocketing and basically um, holding people up. There was more small crimes being committed and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But that also brings us into Al Capone, which we'll talk about more in the second episode. But fun little fact, prohibition was passed a day before his 21st birthday. Oh, <laughs> so that just goes to show like how young he was, because in all of his photos, he looks middle aged and <laughs> <laughs> middle aged. <laughs> but there were some businesses that did well. So because there was an exemption for liquors to be dispensed by doctors, doctors were allowed to prescribe a pint every 10 days. And it's estimated that doctors ended up writing over 6 million prescriptions during Prohibition. Because, you know, I would get sick, and then my wife would get sick, and then my child would get sick. Like, everybody (laughs) in the family is getting sick all of a sudden. Right, Every 10 days or so. Right. (laughs) And Walgreens actually grew from 20 stores in 1920 to 525 in 1929. Wow. And, of course, they say it was due to good marketing and things like that, but I'm pretty sure that... It was prohibition. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) But also, we saw the rise of Coca-Cola during this time. Yes. So, initially, when Coca-Cola was introduced, it had cocaine in it, but... I don't think there was cocaine during this day. It was just, I'm not sure. Soft drinks were becoming more popular as a result of prohibition. Yeah. So. You can't drink the water because it's not clean and now you can't drink alcohol. So right, right. sugar yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> Another business that did really well was actually grape farmers. And that was because the exemption that allowed people to make grapes, to make wine in their home. The average, the acreage that farmers in California devoted to growing grape wines expanded from 97,000 to 681,000, which is crazy. So all that Napa Valley wine you enjoy now, you can thank Prohibition for it. And the price of grapes during that time, if you wanted to get a ton of grapes, in 1919, it was only $9.50. And by 1924, it was $375. (laughs) Yeah. And there were also companies that sold grape bricks, which is where they condensed the juices down into a solid. But they would have these warnings on the label that said, just be careful because if you mix this with water and put it somewhere dark, it'll turn into (laughs) wine. (laughs) So kind of like telling people how to make wine, but trying to make it seem like they were... Like a warning. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of like fun things that kind of happened during this time. So along with Prohibition... We saw the creation of speakeasies, and when no one can drink, everyone can drink. (laughs) So traditionally with saloons, women weren't allowed in saloons. Only men were allowed. But now with speakeasies, women were a part of the drinking culture. So this changed a lot. This changed everything from the clothing during the time, and that also might have been the buildup, the of the Great Depression, but the hemlines got shorter. There was less frab- fabric being used. The music had started to change. You see more jazz and things of that nature, but you also see changes in dating and courtship. Previously, if you were a young lady and you wanted to date somebody, you had to have a guardian there with you, but prohibition changed that. Now, women were encourage really to be rebellious because everybody's being rebellious that was really the culture right and so women were going out with men without that guardian there so it really changed dating and you saw that women had become very empowered by 
getting the right to vote in particular. They were also, they were really moving from more traditional subservient roles to the new woman of the Prohibition era, or as is often referred to, the flapper. Right. And so even though women had this newfound independence, they were not making enough money to drink on their own. So there was still a lot of equality issues during this time. Like women were paid significantly less than men. Um, so they weren't able to really afford those things. But usually they could find some handsome man to buy the <laughs> drinks for them, I guess. <laughs> but you were seeing a lot more women working during this time. Right. So half of single women had a job by 1929. So you see more women getting into the workplace. You see more women moving to cities. And it really opened up a lot more opportunities for women. Did you know the term sexy came from the 1920s? I did not. Yeah, it's out, as a result of the change of courtship and women's attire and women's independence. So yeah, the, the term sexy came from the 1920s. And you also saw women in roles that they typically wouldn't have been in. Um, there were women who ran speakeasies. One good example of that was Texas Goonan, who was an American actress. She became the hostess of the El Fay Club and had celebrity guests such as Babe Ruth, Charlie Chaplin, Charles Lindbergh, and she would get raided. They would shut down her club and she would just open up another one. She had so many closings that she actually had a necklace made for herself. <laughs> it was a charm necklace that had many gold padlocks on it. You had women who were writing for newspapers. There was a writer named Lois Long who went by the pen name Lipstick. Who yes. wrote for the New Yorker. And she was really the epitome of what you would picture a flapper being. So even women who couldn't afford that luxurious lifestyle could read about her exploits, about her going to all these different clubs and all the people she was meeting and all the things she was doing. She was like the Carrie Bradshaw of the prohibition movement. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the things to note, like, cause she very much looks like a flapper with the short oh, hair yeah. and everything. She'd also come into work late wearing her evening attire into work and stuff. And I think we'd fall asleep at work too. Oh yeah. She was usually drunk when she got there. <laughs> but so during, from the 1910s to the 1920s, you saw this big change with women's fashion. So at the time, like in the 1910s, women had long hair. It was usually like put up in some way and they would wear these long hobble skirts which were extremely controversial at the time because it was it showed off a woman's figure but hobble skirts really restricted a woman's movement because they could barely like move their <laughs> legs to walk but so you see that a lot during the time of the titanic and things mm -hmm. like that so if women were traveling abroad they would be usually wearing hobble skirts and i don't know how that's functional but most of, women's, <laughs> most of women's fashion is not functional. No, it's not. But you also had more serious roles. So, for example, in 1920, you had Annette Abbott, who was made the first assistant attorney general for the U.S., or the first female. And she ended up resigning in 1921, but she ended up getting replaced by Mabel Willebrandt, who's often referred to as the first lady of law. 
And she would stay in that position through most of Prohibition. You also had a 1924 Maria C. Brenmouse. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. She was the first female candidate for vice president. Uh, She ran on the Prohibition Party ticket. And fun fact, the Prohibition Party still exists today, which is really Really? crazy. Yeah, (laughs) they have like a candidate running for president. Do they still have the Anti-Saloon League? Like, is that still? No. Okay. The Anti-Saloon League died out after Prohibition died out. Gotcha. Okay. It wasn't just women who saw a change in culture and drinking. You also started having what they called black and tan clubs. So previously, bars had been segregated. You had white bars and black bars. And even though there was still much inequality, speakeasies brought about clubs that all races could come to and so you started having a little bit more intermingling and that's really where you see the dynamic of the music and the jazz age coming out um people would go to the clubs in harlem specifically to listen to the jazz music you had louis armstrong come out during this time Irvin berlin he had songs during this time that went against prohibition and that name might sound familiar because he wrote god bless america but he also wrote songs that went against prohibition. He's like, you can't shake your shimmy on tea. Is that the song? I don't Something know. Something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, so you just had a lot of changes going on in that society. And most of this is what you think of when you think of the glamorization of the 1920s, when you think of the great Gatsby and, you know, beautiful people and parties and music and alcohol. But... As you'll see in our second episode, there were also some downsides. And we'll get into the downsides and the repeal in next week's episode. So until next week, you can find us on Facebook at Why Blank Matters. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Why underscore underscore matters. And uh, we'll see you next week. See ya.